0: Welcome to the Altmetric podcast, where we bring you the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. I'm your host, Lucy Goodchild. dinosaurs roar as a colossal asteroid rips through the atmosphere and collides with the earth throwing up a cloud of dust and gas so thick that it plunges the planet into a decades-long winter wiping out most species but is that what happened in this episode of the altmetric podcast We hear from Dr. Alessandro Chiarenza, the lead author of a study providing the first quantitative confirmation of what caused the mass extinction 66 million years ago. We don't really know how it sounded, of course... But it's likely there would have been an earth-shattering boom when an asteroid crashed into the earth, causing a 180 kilometer wide crater in the Gulf of Mexico. Meanwhile, volcanoes throwing out lava flows the size of France would have been roaring too. That was 66 million years ago, and it's widely believed that one of these events, or a combination of the two, led to the mass extinction that ended the age of the dinosaurs. But that's a difficult thing to prove, and scientists have spent decades looking for evidence to tell us what really happened. A new paper in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences provides the first quantitative confirmation that the only plausible explanation for the extinction is... well, you're just going to have to wait. The story hit the headlines around the world, garnering the paper an altmetric attention score of over 2,500. I spoke to the lead author, Dr. Alessandro Chiarenza, who carried out the research as part of his PhD at Imperial College London. He told me about the research and why it matters and shared some great tips for other researchers. Firstly, thanks for talking to me. Thanks to you. So I want to start with a bit about you actually what's your background how did you get into
1: this area? Um, so basically okay I'm a naturalist I have a degree in natural science and then a master's degree in evolutionary biology and as a PhD at the Peer College London I started focusing on uh, paleobiology so basically you know paleontology the study of uh, ancient life through fossils, but particularly looking at analytical methods, so all those computational techniques and quantitative analysis that can help you out to disentangle uh, mechanisms of the evolution of life and also the interactions with the environment and climates and so on. So I started doing that for a PhD, and because my main focus as a study sample, let's say, was the the dinosaurs that lived during the Cretaceous, so towards the end of the, you know, dinosaur era, uh, I inevitably got into the arguments of the extinction or how they went extinct and how uh, climate have played a role. And so we eventually, me and some other colleagues that were working with me to put together data sets and other kind of data simulations on uh, the environments of the past and stuff like that, got me into these you know big topic of the extinction and the drivers that may have affected the environments and eventually the biodiversity of dinosaurs and so how that's how one of the chapter of my PhD thesis went on uh, tackling the big issues of what was the main driver of dinosaur extinction.
0: Wow that is a big issue to tackle in a PhD.
1: (laughs) Yeah uh, surely yeah I was aware that you know, it may cause some stir from, <laughs> from the community, but eventually, you know, we just went on confirming or reaffirming in a quantitative way something that was already sort of, uh, in a way, uh, being described from the literature and being put forward even decades ago, uh, which is, you know, the main hypothesis, the one that sees the asteroid impact as the main driver of dinosaur extinction.
0: So I mean, this is the, the non-scientists among us. This is portrayed as a sort of almost a clear-cut story, really. You know, this is how the dinosaurs went extinct. But what are some of the challenges around that story, and what is it that we didn't really know? Yeah.
1: So when, whenever you're talking about events that that disentangle during millions of years, uh, and they happen so far away in the past, it's always difficult to pinpoint which exact agents is affecting which. I mean it's even difficult today when we study modern ecosystem knowing exactly what is affecting what. And so imagine doing that for 66 million years ago. Uh, the main challenge in this past decade since the in the 80s, so in June 1980, this paper on uh, recognizing from a series of evidence that An asteroid fell on Earth 66 million years ago and produced some global effects. And the fact that many people related these effects with the extinction of the dinosaurs. Since this paper came out, uh, there's been some sort of controversy on trying to either find more evidence to support this claim, or the other current of evidence that they were looking at putting together evidence for uh, actually other drivers, other mechanisms that from you know, mainly coming from the planet that may explain this extinction. And one, let's say, of the most uh, competing that the hypothesis was having more support from some part of the community was that massive volcanic events that chronologically were happening around the same time of the end of the Cretaceous might have caused the extinction. Of course, because one of the big uh, problems with this is that you need to have precise dating to understand w- when these things are happening and whether they match with the uh, disappearance of many animals including the dinosaurs. So one of the biggest challenge during these 40 years has probably been uh, putting a very solid calendar on these events happening and only recently with very highly sophisticated techniques of dating involving uh, you know, computational methods, modeling, but also new uh, ways of geochemically dating rocks, via radioactive elements. We have a way of sexing when these things were happening. So this probably was one of the biggest challenges that, as a scientific community, we always we all faced up to now. And you looked
0: specifically at, at volcanoes and asteroid impacts. Can you tell me briefly about these two different stories?
1: Yeah. So basically, uh, after in the 80s, uh, one of the main elements that uh, pointed towards an asteroid as something big, very, very big that happened at the end of the Cretaceous was this layer of iridium, these particular elements that is most commonly found in. Uh, in uh, basically rocks coming from space, like asteroids, meteorites. And this is a layer that it's basically ubiquitous. So it's found everywhere in the planet, around the planet. And it's dated exactly 66 million years ago. By investigating where the source on Earth of these elements might have been, uh, researchers eventually were driven to this area around the Caribbean Sea and eventually recognized this very big crater a crater that was uh, 200 kilometers in diameters, basically, uh, and was dated 66 million years ago to the actual scar on the planet of this event. This is the part of the story that supports the asteroid as the main driver of the extinction or something that definitely happened around that time. But also there is, uh, there is a succession of rocks in India that are as wide as modern France. Imagine like you know, an area, as modern France, covered in, uh, in basically, lava floats. And these lava floods were deposited around uh, 66 million years ago, so around the time of the end of the dinosaurs. So the idea of the scientists supporting this view uh, were basically mentioning the fact that the climatic effects of all these uh, lava floods, because, of course, with the emissions of rocks from volcanoes you, you also have lots of gases might have posed in the environments might have affected the climate and so eventually bringing to an extinction of many life forms including the dinosaurs so there are there've been like continuous back and forth about which which was the main cause but eventually there are there were solid as i was mentioning there were numerous studies on trying to put a a precise calendar of when these things happening, and recently there were major studies in science mentioning that uh, by the time that most of these lava floods were actually emitted right after the asteroid fell and the dinosaurs disappeared. So that they were mentioning that maybe these things were active, but most of, of these activity was being redated after the famous 66 million years ago date. And what we wanted to do eventually was, OK, we have these elements, and we know that in any case, there might have been some overlapping of these two big phenomena happening around the, the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs. So how can we quantitatively experiment on this? So how can we develop a, a, um, a system to test these ideas?
0: And so how did you, what did you do?
1: Yeah, so for my PhD, I've been mostly working uh, together paleoclimate modelers, so people that use the same kind of techniques that may be today used for the news on the weather, <laughs> and uh, basically these big physical computational models that reproduce the way the atmospheres behaves around the planet. And these people, paleoclimate modelers, use also proxies that comes from the geology, from the knowledge of the geology, of the geochemistry, but also the way the continents were put together during this time to sort of reproduce the conditions that were present millions of years ago. So in this case, at the time of the dinosaurs. But what we added to this was putting all the elements that we knew on the study, based on the study of these big events that, big cataclysms that happened around the time of the dinosaurs, and seeing how we would reproduce these things and their effects in the climate when the dinosaurs were around. But other than do this, my main line of, uh, let's say, skill that I acquired during my PhD was of developing these sort of ecological models. So. In particular case, I used some technique that was borrowed uh, from computational ecology that uses the conditions on the planet, on the geography, on space, in space, where a kind of animals uh, is allowed to live. So where the conditions allow these animals to live. And in particular, I reproduce the conditions where the dinosaurs could have lived based on the fossil occurrences and big uh, data that we gathered from, Collections of dinosaurs around the globe, and after doing that and having created our models of where all these dinosaurs were able to live, we basically thrown to these models these conditions that were changing because of the different agents, so either the asteroid or the uh, Deccan uh, volcanisms, and eventually reproducing more, more and more uh, specific, and eventually even uh, more elaborated and I would say, realistic uh, simulations that reproduce both of these agents acting together. And what eventually we found out as a result was that every simulation that was reproducing the asteroid impact was causing a demise of the area of the dinosaurs. So basically all the areas where dinosaurs were able to live, uh, the suitable areas, suitable areas where dinosaurs could live, disappeared. On the other hand, whenever you were reproducing this even very extreme uh, scenarios where this deccan volcanism uh, was active and was affecting the climate, you couldn't uh, find a similar response. And in addition, whenever you were reproducing these things together, you would see that after a big drop in temperature that was causing the extinction of the dinosaurs, they, or eventually the climate and the environment was sort of recovering. And what we noticed was that the effects of these uh, volcanic eruptions was sort of ameliorating the negative effect of the asteroid. So basically boosting and speeding up the recovery and eventually regaining the initial conditions before the extinction happened. Did anything surprise you? Uh, Yes, at first. Uh, Particularly because, you know, these were simulations. These were based on, of course, we had lots of you know, proxies and lots of data to put together, and lot we were relying on the literature as well. But the the thing is that, you know, we were first starting with an idea that probably a concert of these two events were acting together to cause, uh, you know, deterioration of the environment of the end of the Cretaceous and eventually leading to, ex- to the extinction. And that was actually a different story. But eventually, because of course, as you probably know, the, the review process and the production process, so the phase from when you submit your paper and then eventually gets vetted and you know checked by other experts, it takes some time. And during this time, uh, at least two main papers came out uh, in science, basically arguing on other lines of evidence and mostly based on either the records of new fossil outcrops in North America on land or from marine records uh, that were dating that were dated at the same time of the extinction event they basically were arguing for something similar we're saying that probably the evidence for yes an abrupt extinction caused by the asteroid but then eventually some rising up the temperature which was matching in uh, in timing with these deccan eruptions might have caused an you know, an increasing temperature and a boosting up of the recovery after the extinction. And so I was like, "Well, we actually theoretically produced a model that is actually being tested and proven right right now, while while our paper is in review."
0: Wow, it's amazing.
1: It was kind of something that also encouraged me not just to stop with the version that I was submit, but also to edit and add as information whatever these papers were adding at the story, uh, you know, acknowledging also the fact that in science you don't work as a team and you need to just be egoistically relying on your team, but also seeing what others do and, you know, vetting and increasing and uh, checking and adding information from others. And I think that that eventually strengthened strengthened the case for these kind of model, which is a little bit of a paradigm shift from, you know, either the idea of the angry volcanoes or the mean asteroid from space killing the dinosaurs. It's a more nuanced story and more complex, but you know, eventually this is how the history of life has taught us that it's very complicated, made of very torturous and complicated pathways. And you know, we just think that we reveal this uh, different uh, way of thinking for the extinction of the Anodic Cretaceous.
0: Is there more about the story that we still don't understand? Or is there anything else that you want to explore about it? Tangentially,
1: we touched on the fact that you do see the extinction of many and many and many groups, not only the dinosaurs, many, you know, the flying reptiles, uh, the pterosaurs died out, you know, many marine microorganisms, many invertebrates swimming in the sea, many group of fishes, One of the things that many people don't really know is that we have birds surviving, we have crocs surviving, we have turtles surviving. Today, we have mammals, of of course. Many of these groups were affected as well. Birds, you know, affected, uh, were affected as, you know, 50% maybe of the species, 45% of the species. Many percentage of these groups died out. But eventually, a minor subgroup of them survived. So one of the things that we really would like to understand in the future is which were the mechanisms either in the environments or in their biology that allowed them to survive. Many people may think either reading the piece or listening to this may be okay, but why does it matter? I mean, I honestly don't really care what killed the dinosaurs. And one answer that we can give to this is that by studying these particular issues, we've investigated something that happened in the past, but affected life globally, everywhere, and it was you know, inevitably uh, linked with environmental changes. So by developing these techniques that, trying to work out in a more accurate, increasingly more accurate way, of course, this is not the def- may not be the definitive answer, but it tries to pin and bridge you know the interval between the uncertainty and the certainty. And by using these methods and developing these techniques, having a more clear picture of how environments affected life in the past, we may develop a set of a skill set that may allow us to understand how eventually environments will affect life in the present and in the future. And so we are seeing how, strictly and intimately dependent we are from how environment change, environmental issues and climate change is so important right now for society, not just for you know natural life, for wildlife. And by developing these techniques, we may be able to face these issues and tackle these problems with a more uh, you know secure skill set, with a more safe uh, sets of informations and methods that may help out eventually to to get us out uh, from the climate crisis.
0: It's almost like a given that paleontology, that dinosaurs, that all of this is just inherently interesting.
1: Yeah, of course we also have a mediatic image, a popular image of the paleontologist as this sort of in, Indiana Jones figure that goes in the desert, in the dust, digs up monsters, that's it, goes to the museum, that's it. But actually, it's not true. So what we really do is disentangling the history of life from the very origin to now. And we, we use, of course, as a medium, whatever is left as a trace, as a tangible trace on the planet of these life forms, which are the fossils. But in order to untangle these stories, which are always very complicated to do it, because as I was saying, there is a time bracket which is enormous, but there's, all, there's a whole geologic history which outside the, you know, the actual sedimentary records, so the one that preserves fossils, that has done as much as they can, think about earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, to sort of obscure this, this information. And so you need to develop analytical techniques, but what we need to do is understanding how Life in these 3.8 billion years long story got affected, got influenced, uh, got even disrupted by environmental changes. And you know, by knowing the story, by understanding how that happens, we may be able to predict how that might happen in the future. And so, of course we are probably a nerdy lot, which really likes big toothy and teethy masters. But the key to understand is that what we want to provide is a picture to the human species about what the past was and how we can learn from this past to understand how something so valuable that we have in this planet, which is life, uh, may change and may eventually even disappear in the future.
0: It goes without saying that, that it's caught the public's attention and um, you have a, an altmetric attention score of 2,522.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy.
0: So I, I saw that it started with a, a press release from Imperial College London. Tell me about that process. What, what did you do in terms of publicity?
1: Yeah, so since uh, the time that I was a PhD student, I was aware that there was uh, a system basically supporting some findings that might have caught in some, some way the public side interest. So I was aware of the people that were working there because during my PhD, I also published another chapter already and that got also uh, the treatment of the Imperial Press Office. So I once the, the paper got accept, was accepted, I got in touch with this person, Hayley Durning at Imperial, and uh, she was like, okay, pass me the draft and everything, and let's start to put together a story. I eventually provided some extra, you know, bits of information, of so quotes from the co-authors cool uh, that might have liked to, you know, be showcased and highlighted in the, in the press release. I also worked with a paleo artist, uh, Fabio Manucci is basically a scientific illustrator which focuses on prehistoric life. And we tried to reproduce uh, an image that was a little bit more original than the usual so whenever you google dinosaur extinction you probably chances are you're going to find a t-rex wide open which is looking at the sky uh this fireballs in the sky and it's always the t-rex sometimes it's the triceratops so we wanted to i like something different and uh, uh we chose eventually an ankyloser which is this sort of tank armored dinosaur that lives together with t-rex and dinosaurs but for, and triceratops but for some reasons is never shown on, uh, on uh, these kind of images and we also looked at how uh, modern observation you know youtube is full of these videos of these you know fireballs or meteorites or whatever falls in the sky so we mix this sort of information to create a visual that it's you know as scientifically solid as possible that shows the event. And I think that these also might have played a role. Plus, you know, there were lots of cool graphics from already research. Uh, my brother is a graphic designer, so he helped me out with uh, uh, one reconstruction that shows the asteroid falling from space. So you see uh, the blue planet as a, as a scene from space, but with the geography of the end of the Cretaceous, so a little bit different, and the asteroid falling, and we use that as well. And these all together, I think, help out to attract more attention.
0: What gave you the idea to work with artists?
1: Um, So it's quite common in paleontology uh, that if you have an eat find or something that is actually pretty new and can be interesting, to uh, co work with artists. So this is actually a tradition that is not just being uh, boosted or just didn't start in recent years so since the beginning in the 19th century paleontologists or many old you know old style old fashioned paleontologists were also artists or were working together with artists to create you know think about crystal palace in london and uh, you know these are the very first reproduction of uh, dinosaurs in life size and whatever the scientific concept were at the time were the most updated uh, versions of uh, prehistoric creatures, and you know this is a tradition that's always been uh, promoted and has been going with you know eventually also movies and other stuff. But always dinosaur researchers, but other kind of other kind of paleontologists have always been working with either people illustrating the bones or putting flesh on the bones or you know showing weird behaviors and things. And you know whenever there is a chance to you know publish or researching on something unusual that is kind of new I always try to make sure that I'm working with some either a co-author or someone who's able artistically skilled but also paleontologically knowledgeable that can help out to flesh out the idea either of the an- existing animals or of the scenes that we're trying to depict with science.
0: It's a really interesting idea that this you know, because it was such a long time ago. You mentioned before this, you know, the challenges we have with climate science today are even bigger when you apply them to sort of sixty-five million years ago. Um, yeah. And so there is, there is, I guess, you know, plugging that gap. There is this element of imagination in all sorts of
1: ways. Yeah. Uh, you of course needs to. Re- you need to be aware of the uncertainties that are in play, both from the scientific sides, but also. From the pure epistemological side, so the fact that we're talking about something unraveling so far in time, that you have to use all the network of your theoretical knowledges to sort of trying to bridge this gap and put it together knowledges from different systems—not only the paleontology by itself, but also climate science, environmental sciences, and you know, in this case, for example, astronomical knowledge—and trying to approximate as much as you can. From what you know today what might have been in the past and of course there is the you know this is the known unknown that we may be you know never able to properly tackle unless we build a time machine sometimes in the future but uh you know it's an effort it's a collective efforts uh, from different sources sources of science but you know it's interesting nonetheless
0: absolutely and you know, on, on the other side of that, you then had this phenomenal amount of news coverage. you got, I saw 264 news articles to come out from this. That must have been quite an experience.
1: Both myself, but also the other main authors, Alexander Farnsworth, the paleoclimatology guy in Bristol, uh, received lots of, you know, invitation to interviews or, you know, provide some quotes uh, yeah, it was definitely a very intense week to up to ten days. But as we can see, you know, even, even today there is some sort of attention that comes from the press or different sources. So, yeah, I guess it's it's nice.
0: How did you prepare for it?
1: You know, when I was studying for my PhD, I had lots of you know, sort of courses from Imperial itself, like graduate courses on science communications and every different aspects. I was in the program of the Grantham Institute of Environmental Change, and they provided lots of training for uh, communicating science, environmental issues to the public. So that helped a little bit. But eventually, I guess that the, the major efforts was trying to, even even now, even in this interview, translating what's very technical, uh, information about very hardcore geology, but also computational methods and, you know, paleontology and evolution translated in a language that can be interesting and then, you know, can be appealing for everyone. Uh, and I guess that, you know, yeah, there is part of this training that surely helped a lot, but also, you know, the, the training, let's say the lifelong training of studying for these kind of things, uh, you know, training as a paleontologist might have helped a little bit. Paleontology is a, is a very uh, sexy science for people. It's uh, uh, and in a way that produces also lots of media products and books and things that deal with these issues. So by reading lots of these essays or you know uh, journal articles or stuff can help you out in a way to you know reply in a neat way to some tough questions that may open you know, a gateway of different possibilities of replying at different levels of uh, technicism.
0: We always finish by asking, what would be your advice to other researchers who want to engage the public or get some publicity with their research? Uh,
1: Probably, yeah, as I was saying, the uh, office at Imperial, uh, Haley Dunning, particularly helped a lot. So if you have someone that you know is very good at this, and it works at your same department or your same institution, get in touch as soon as you can, at least to get a feeling of how these people may have tackled these issues and eventually proposing you with a piece or something that may be appealing. Because eventually the people you're going to work with are going to determine the success of these pieces as paleontologists, we're very lucky to have a network of very skilled artists that produce these amazing visuals uh, on prehistoric life. If you're a geophysicist, or a astron- astronomer, or I don't know, a medical researcher, always trying to engage with artists, and they can probably help you out to merge the gap from what is probably interested, but it's just written word. It's it's logos, it's just reasoning and, re- and real words to put that into visuals, into images. And this will probably boost massively the success of the story.
0: What a great piece of advice. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing your, the story of your research. I'm really looking forward to seeing what more you come up with.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another headline-grabbing study. Curious what sort of attention your article is getting? Find out at altmetric.com. Until next time!